I'm struck by the fact that these hosts and executives, they knew the truth about Donald Trump. Rupert Murdoch sure did, and yet for various reasons, they couldn't really express that on the air. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Diana Felzone, a senior reporter at Mediaite. And I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. We've got a great show this week. We are joined by Brian Stelter, the ace media reporter whose new book about Fox News, Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the battle for American democracy is out now. We discussed Brian's book as well as his own career in cable news, which came to a halt after he was fired as the host of Reliable Sources on CNN. Since Brian has remained a ubiquitous media reporter, he pops up on cable news to provide analysis. He reports for a number of outlets, is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, hosts a podcast for the magazine. So we're really excited to talk to him about what happened at CNN, his own career, and his new book about Fox News. A brief disclosure, I worked as a reporter at Fox News until 2018. Here it is. Hey, Brian, welcome back to the interview. Uh, congratulations on your new book, which came out this week. It's called Network of Lies, the Epic Saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the Battle for American Democracy. And it's a really great read. So congrats on that. Thank you. Good to be here. So I want to start with something that is pretty unique about this book, and that's the evidence that it's based on. So you've written about Fox News before. You've covered it as a media reporter. You wrote a book in 2020 called Hoax, which pulled on your sources inside and outside the network. But this book is different. It uses a trove of evidence from the Dominion defamation suit against Fox News, in addition to your own sources to tell this story. And that evidence really gave the world an unprecedented look at the guts of this news network, particularly interesting because it's a, such a secretive and, and guarded network. Tell us what you found when you were digging through that evidence preparing for this book. I found that the stars and executives of Fox are all too human, uh, you know, with all of the flaws, all the, the, the selfishness, all of the greed, all of those flaws that, that we might wonder about and some critics might assume. But, but now there's a public record. Now, now it is, uh, you know, it's, it's all written down. And that's, that's why I had to write the book. I wasn't looking to write another book about Fox, but I feel like uh, with Hoax, I had all these anonymously sourced claims uh, about Fox. And then all of a sudden, because of the Dominion trial, pretend the, the Dominion case, those claims were on the record. So people would say to me for Hoax, we don't believe this stuff. We just tell the viewers to believe it. And now you basically have the same kinds of claims, the same kinds of admissions on the record in these emails and texts and memos. Uh, I've never seen anything like this happen to any major media company where so many files were exposed into public view. But here's the thing. Just because these, e these emails and text messages came out through a court filings uh, doesn't mean they're actually really that public. There's a lot of emails and messages in my book that are not Googleable. Like if you put it in Google, you're not going to find them because they're nowhere on the internet because they're stuffed away in government databases, court databases. Uh, you know, they're hard to find, even though they are technically public. So that's that's what I was trying to solve with this book. So a lot of this stuff, like you mentioned, was already public. But what did you find that didn't get any attention? What were some of the juiciest nuggets that when you found it, you went, whoa, this is this is mind blowing. I think it was really revealing how Tucker Carlson tried to have it both ways or always in the immediate aftermath of Biden's election. He didn't believe the voter fraud lies, but he, he knew he had to be open to it in order to appease his audience. And he's texting with his producers about that dynamic. 
he hears his producer say, you know, the audience is pissed that we're not covering voter fraud. And he says, yeah, we should have, but I hate that stuff. And then the next night he comes up with a way to cover it, you know, talking about alleged dead people who might have voted. Of course, some of those people weren't dead and real reporters from real outlets knocked on their doors and found out they were alive. Tucker had to, you know, make a tiny little baby correction in the middle of Friday. It was like one of those Friday night news dumps where he admitted he was wrong. Um, but those kinds of episodes, which, you know, media covers every single day, I thought it was important to put them all in one place to, to, to let it all kind of wash over people. There were other messages that have not been published before. Uh, Laura Ingram saying that Donald Trump is on a grievance loop that just runs around and around and around. I'm struck by the fact that these hosts and executives, they knew the truth about Donald Trump. Rupert Murdoch sure did when he was emailing people saying that Trump is damaging everybody. This is terrible. You know, they knew the truth about the the president. Um, and yet, for various reasons, they sorry, I touched the mic uh, for various reasons. They couldn't really express that on the air. I, I, I think that's one of the more interesting things about the book is the fact that as you know, there's all these things that people suspect about news outlets and news organizations. You know, you, you talk to people that don't work in news and they often say, you know, oh, well, is there anyone telling anchors what to say or reporters what to say at news outlets? And my answer is always no, of course not. There's not, you know, a sort of top down mandate uh, for one partisan direction. Um, typically, news outlets are staffed by people of a certain partisan persuasion sometimes, and that can affect the overall uh, lean of a news outlet. But really, what, what this evidence exposed of Fox News, and I think it's unique to Fox News, is that there really was this top-down mandate to, as they put it so many times in private, to respect the audience. And fundamentally, the story that you're telling here is about Fox News conditioning its audience not to be able to handle the truth, and the consequences of that when Fox News eventually has to turn around and say, actually, Joe Biden won, this election wasn't stolen. Like, could you explain that dynamic a little bit, that relationship between Fox News and its audience and, and whether or not Fox News realized at a certain point that it had made this, this tragic mistake? Mm -hmm. Respect the audience is such an interesting euphemism because by shouting the lie, by giving viewers false hope, by implying Trump might get a second term, by saying if he doesn't get a second term, he was clearly stolen, he's the victim of a robbery, by saying all of that, they were disrespecting the audience. Can you imagine if I had been on CNN in November of 2020, acting like Trump might still be president, acting like Biden might be illegitimate, that Trump might have a shot, that this might go to the Supreme Court? Like, I would have gotten called in. I would have gotten suspended. I, I would have been disciplined. I might have been suspended. Uh, of course, that would have never happened because I live in a reality-based environment with uh, editors and checks and balances and standards and practices. You know. CNN and all the other major outlets uh, reported the truth and then moved on. That's the other amazing thing about this book. You realize that this, this BS went on for months on Fox. You know, Fox claims that they went on for about a month. That's what their legal defense was. We waited a month and then we moved on. But like a month? <laughs> Biden was president-elect, projected, November 8th. And at the end of November, beginning of December, they're still going off on this false hope. And it was so disrespectful to the audience. But there's one quote I pulled up that I, I think is really telling about this. And I had not seen this reported uh, before. Uh, it's November 24th. And Sean Hannity sends around uh, a link to a CNBC article. It says, almost no Trump's, Trump voters consider Biden the legitimate election winner. 
Well, of course they didn't, because for two weeks, Fox had been telling them that, that Biden was illegitimate. So, so Hannity sends this article to his top producers, and then he writes, respecting this audience, whether we agree or not, is critical. Fox has spent the month spitting at them. And then the producer replies and says, yeah, our best minutes last week were the voting irregularities. He means minute by minute ratings. So they're looking at these charts, these line graphs, these bar graphs, and literally seeing that the viewers want to be lied to. So I, I think there it is in Hannity's own words. We have to respect this audience. Fox has been spitting at them. When he says spitting at them, what he means is Fox has been telling them the truth. That's what he means by spitting at them. It's, it's so hard to cover this sometimes, Aiden and, and Diana, because it's like we're covering a mirror world. We're covering an upside down world. Mm. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And they pay for that upside down. The lawsuit ended in dramatic fashion with Fox News paying a last minute settlement of $787 million to Dominion to avoid a trial. Do you think the network changed in any meaningful way in response to their accountability? Meaningful way? Um, no. Yeah, I think around the edges, we can point to a couple of changes. Donald Trump's not allowed to call in anymore. He's not allowed to go on the network live for an interview. You know, y'all have written about how those interviews are now pre-taped, uh, in part because of fears of further legal liability. But those are just changes around the edges. I think the most significant change of Fox is actually a change in a in a negative direction, a downward direction, and that is that um, I think they're becoming a little more savvy about pushing misinformation. Uh, and what I mean by that is. You can, you can get away with a lot without coming across the line of defaming a company or a person. You, you don't have to go on the air as they did in November 2020 and say, Dominion, Hugo Chavez, Venezuela, right? Those are specific factual statements that can be rebutted. But what you can do, and what I think we're going to see in 2024, is a lot of euphemisms, a lot of hints, a lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of extreme rhetoric that tiptoes up to the line, but doesn't cross the line into legal exposure. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, I think it was very wishful thinking after 2020 and after the Dominion lawsuit when people thought, oh, well, you know, Fox News will stop pushing this kind of misinformation or, or pushing the stolen election lie. And it, the problem was never that Fox News was saying that the election was stolen. That's not what landed them in trouble. What landed them in trouble was defaming a private company or two private companies, you know, if they end up um, getting held accountable in, in the Smartmatic case. So I don't, Can I say yeah. I, on that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. That was one of the, the big revelations for me when I interviewed the Dominion lawyers. You know, because again, you all both know how this works. There was so much attention in April around the settlement and the lawyers gave a bunch of interviews. But then we all move on to the next story. So when I had time with them months later and I could really dig deep and reconstruct this, hmm. here was one of the things I realized that I didn't understand back in April when the settlement happened. Dominion's lawsuit was really narrow on purpose. They could have sued over so much more. Right. Because to your point, Aiden, there were so many other claims on the air that were arguably defam defamatory. Lots of things Sean Hannity said that were painting Dominion as a villain, portraying Trump as a victim of Dominion's evil wrongdoing. Like, there were so many lies on the air. But, but Dominion had to, well, they didn't have to. They chose to narrowly build a case on 20 of those lies that were easily debunked. Because gave them their best chance of winning, it was the strongest case. But it was so interesting to me to think about what, what it's like if you're on the receiving end of this stuff and you're looking at all the transcripts and you're deciding uh, what to sue over, what to call them out for. 
they they made up they, they built a narrow case on purpose because it was the the smartest legal strategy. But there was so much more to this big lie. Mm. Now, what what's so shocking about this whole story, I think, is that Trump's lies about the election are very directly what cost Fox News nearly a billion dollars in in the Dominion case. It will continue to cost the network money if they continue to lose defamation suits. The network still backs him regardless, over overwhelmingly. How do you think people inside the network feel about that, that the man who has cost them so much money and grief is someone that they still are supportive of on air because the audience wants that? Mm. Uh, I heard, I've heard a variety of views about this uh, within Fox. I'm trying to pull up a memorable quote uh, that, that I, I don't think has been been noticed in the book because I think it gets to the the different uh, feelings out there uh, right. w- within Fox. There are definitely producers and, and and hosts of Fox who desperately want to break from Trump. But they, they want the party to break from Trump. They, now, this isn't just about Fox. This is about trying to move the the, the entire party away from the the Donald Trump's cult like hold on the GOP. So there's definitely that, and you can see some of that in the Dominion messages. You know, hosts like Dana Perino who wanted the the Trump albatross, as she called it, to be off the you know off the neck. Um, but then here's an example from from page uh, 229 that is pulled up. Remember that period uh, in the uh, you know kind of in the Biden era or in the post Trump era where Trump was going out and doing rallies and Fox was not showing them live. Yep. Newsmax would show them live and Newsmax would get a big rating spike. You know, Newsmax might have you know fifty thousand viewers on a Saturday night, but with Trump's rally, they'd have one point five. Million, and and I had a Fox producer gripe to me and say, "quote You know that expression about leaving money on the table? We are leaving ratings on the table." You know, so you, you had some producers, some people there saying, "What are we doing? Ignoring this guy? He's still the 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 you know the the soul of the party. He still owns the GOP." I know Rupert Murdoch wants to make him a non-person, but he is still what the voters want. And obviously, by 2023, Fox has very much come around and accepted that reality, but. You know, it is notable that in 2021 and kind of 2022, Fox really did try to make Trump a non-person. This was not a conspiracy theory. This was a real conspiracy. There was an attempt to move away from Trump. It was real. It was concerted. You know, you all wrote about the Ron DeSantis flirtations and all of that. It failed. At the end of the day, Fox came back home. And Uh uh, that says a lot about who's really in charge of the party and who really has the power. You know, there's always been that debate about, you know, how, how much is this Fox versus the GOP? And I think Trump is showing right now that uh, the Fox fell in line, at least to some degree. I, I know there's a counter argument, which is that, you know, well, you, you know, I, <laughs> there's a counter argument, but I, I pretty much buy that they've fallen into line. And, and, you know, we're definitely going to get more into that. But much of your book focuses on Tucker Carlson, who was the top host on Fox News until he was fired earlier this year. And you wrote about that in in really wonderful detail. There have been countless theories as to why he was fired. What did you find when you dug into it? This is fascinating to me because there was an information vacuum uh, the moment that Tucker was fired. Uh, you know, we remember that Monday morning, what a shock it was to have this announcement that he was out, that the show was canceled, that there would be no sign off, uh, that there would be no explanation. And so because there was no explanation, there was no reason given for his ouster. I feel like Tucker and his allies were able to fill that information vacuum with conspiracy theories. They were able to fill it with their 
preferred versions of events, you know, that, that it was because of Tucker's position on Ukraine, or it was because uh, Rupert Murdoch fell in love with a woman who was a big Tucker Carlson fan, but then he dumped her. And so he wanted to uh, punish her or seek revenge or stick it to her by firing Tucker. Like I try to explain these things and it sounds so crazy as I'm saying it out loud. The biggest theory, of course, was that and Tucker has said this on the record, he has claimed it as a fact, as if he knows it for a fact, that he was canceled, quote, as a condition of the Dominion settlement. Now, that is an incredible claim to make. I know that Tucker doesn't worry very much about whether what he's saying is true or not, but that's an incredible factual claim to make. And of course, Dominion's denied it, Fox has denied it, Dominion's lawyers denied it again to me. I explained in the book why it makes no sense. What does make sense is that there were dozens of real reasons for Lachlan Murdoch to can Tucker Carlson. The, the biggest shock is that it didn't happen sooner. Aiden, didn't your, your piece about Tucker publish about a month before this all went down? You wrote about how Tucker right. had this incredible grip on the Murdochs. And that's very true. That was so true and so strange. It's almost as if these guys suddenly came out of the spell and looked around and realized, oh, actually, you know what? He's not irreplaceable. He's not untouchable. Uh, actually, He's, he's just as vulnerable, if not any, more, more vulnerable than anybody else. Right. The, the piece was about, it came out a, a couple weeks, about a month before Tucker Carlson was fired. And it was about how he had gotten to this point within Fox News where he was not accountable to any editorial standards, any leadership. He had uh, a relationship that we found out in, in the Dominion evidence that wasn't as strong with Lachlan Murdoch as he indicated it was. But... He certainly did not have a relationship with Suzanne Scott, the Fox News CEO. She had no control over what he did. And in fact, and this is something that you get into a little bit in the book that I've always found interesting about Tucker Carlson. He would often uh, disparage Suzanne Scott in conversations with media reporters. And that was something that I put in that piece about how he existed within his own fiefdom uh, and, and that you know, and, and eventually I, uh, it seems to be that one of the reasons he was let go is that that all really caught up with him. But mm -hmm. I, I'm yeah. curious about your relationship with Tucker Carlson, because you guys go way back. Uh, you've you've long been a media reporter covering his career at at CNN yeah. and MSNBC. And I just find it so interesting that he so frequently attacks media reporters with venom in public but gossips with them privately. So uh, tell us about his relationship with media reporters, including yourself. Uh, well, you know, I want to be careful about, you know, the, the terms of a relationship. Mm. Uh, I, suffice to say that he was not gossiping with me uh, in okay. recent years. In fact, I stopped replying to his texts last year because it was getting so hateful uh, that it just, you know. It so do you think he's changed? He's not, not he's, he's no longer someone who sort of pretends to dis disdain the media publicly but gossips with them in private he now actually doesn't like the media i i, I can't speak for others okay. I, I think he has changed as a person yes i think he's changed as a person i think he he was uh, in on it so to speak he mm. he was um you know, he was an unconventional contrarian uh, libertarian leaning conservative commentator he was a youth you know he's a, he was a bolt of energy on crossfire 20 right. years ago um, and even more recently than that, I interviewed him when he started his job at Fox News. Uh, I, I was at the New York Times. Uh, he was just starting at Fox. He basically, you know, he was willing to do whatever whatever Roger Ailes told him to do. You know, he needed a job out of the two news networks. But, you know, people forget he was in the wilderness for years. He was hosting Fox and Friends Weekend. He was miserable on that couch. There was one day that 
looked like he was pretending to be asleep on the couch, but he was actually dozing off. So right. when he got the primetime job, you know, that that was everything. That was such a critical promotion, such a critical change in his life. And I, I really believe he talked himself into believing all the BS that he says on the air. You know, he presents this image of America as a Armageddon, you know, as an apocalypse that we are, you know, that we are doomed. It is a, at least this is what he was doing was on Fox. Um, the interviews now he's doing, it's a little bit different. He's doing interviews on, on X. Um, they're mostly just with, you know, the predictable far right figures who share his desperate view of the world. But, you know, the image he was portraying on Fox, it's, I would actually argue it's, un-American, the way that he portrayed the, the doomsday the, the scenarios, the way that he depicted uh, America's cities, the way he uh, portrayed uh, liberals, not as people with different ideas, but as evil enemies. Um, and to your point, lots of name calling, lots of name calling of media reporters and other. He loved to call me a eunuch. Uh, which it just doesn't even make any sense. So I don't right. have to explain. You can Google it if you want to <laughs> understand that. Um, but look, it, that's it's a darkened heart. That's right. what it is. Like, that comes from a that comes from a darkened heart. And and wh why did he get to that point? You know, I think I lay out some reasons in the book. I don't think I have the full story. I think it's. I think there's still probably more to figure out someday there. Mm -hmm. uh you know, your book centers on Trump, Trump's lies about the 2020 election and its aftermath, which included the January 6th riot at the Capitol and then a series of defamation suits and scandals at Fox News. You write that the coup attempt on January 6th could not have happened without the help of Fox News. What role do you think Fox News played in enabling January 6th? And to what extent yeah. is the network to blame for what happened that day? Right. I think, number one, Blame is widely, widely shared, and blame is centered and concentrated on the rioters and on the co-conspirators who encouraged them to ransack the Capitol. So let's just say that off the bat. It's not as if Mark Levin on Fox was saying, storm the gates. Mm. He didn't need to because he and others were softening the ground for months and, and that's why it is important to reckon with Fox's role. And that is why it could not have happened without Fox News, which I understand is a pretty strong statement to make. But when I reconstructed November and December and January, that period, that pivotal period, I was really astonished by how much this goes back to Fox, how much it links back to Fox. And I'll tell you why. The, the Dominion smear didn't start with Donald Trump. It started with Sidney Powell and Maria Bartiromo live on Fox. And the Dominion smear is important because Dominion becomes a villain. Trump becomes a victim of this evildoer, this, this wrongdoer. Uh, you know, the election was stolen and here's the thief. And that was the narrative about Smartmatic as well. That was one of many different tenets of the big lie that gets people so whipped into a frenzy that they feel they should fly to Washington. And, you know, I, I know media has covered some of these cases of, of rioters who have pled guilty, who have said they were watching Fox. They were watching too much Fox. You know, you don't get a, on a plane and fly across the country whether you're Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot, whether you're Ray Epps, the man who was smeared by Fox and is now suing Fox for defamation, you don't fly across the country unless you've consumed a lot of these lies. You're not just watching for 20 minutes and then, and then booking an airline ticket. You have to live in this network of lies. You have to live in this stuff every day for months. So that's why it matters that this was going on for two months on the air. And I just want to underscore one other thing, which is, Early January 2021, the first few days, this has not gotten enough attention. Janine Pirro was on the air the weekend before the attack, 
talking about the Constitution, talking about standing up, you know, so was Mark Levin. I would say Janine Pierre and Mark Levin were the two people uh, coming the closest to, to pushing for something to happen on Wednesday. And of course, Trump was pushing the hardest, but they were echoing what Trump was saying. And you know who knew it was dangerous? John Hannity knew it was dangerous. John Hannity was texting Mark Meadows, worried about January 6th. Mark Meadows uh, you know, was getting those texts from Sean freaking Hannity. By the way, maybe Sean should come on the interview. Sean has still never addressed what he knew about Trump's mind before and after the riot. Sean Hannity is harboring secrets of what happened before and after January 6th. Mm. So well, I get a little passionate about that because I think it's so interesting and underappreciated. Sean yeah. Hannity was asked by the January 6th committee to come in and testify. He didn't. Mm. Uh, Kaylee McEnany did. And of course, she was press secretary at the time. But, you know, mm -hmm. that's a fuck colleague who testified. Anyway, I just think it's so interesting. Hannity is one of the missing pieces of January 6th. I'm not blaming him for any of it. I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger at him. I'm saying... He was on the phone with Trump aides. Mm. He was on the phone with Trump. He knows a lot about Trump's state of mind, and he's mm -hmm. never told his goals. Well, yeah. Hannity has okay. been on the interview before. We'll have to get him on again, and I'll, I'll be well, sure to yes, ask but him yeah, about yeah, that. Well, I'll... you know, I don't know if he's going to come on about this. By the way, you know, <laughs> well, Mediate is in the book repeatedly. I talk about your podcast with Tucker from 2020. I, I know, um, I know. I appreciated the shout out there. I thought that was the most, <laughs> just for our, our listeners to who don't remember that episode, it was the inaugural episode of the interview with Tucker Carlson. And I asked Tucker about the Muslim ban, uh, Trump's proposal to ban all Muslims from the United States in 2016. And Tucker did something that I've heard other Trump supporters do, which was express shock that, that Trump had ever said that. He said, you know, well, there's the travel ban. And I was like, well, I'm not talking about the travel ban. I'm talking about the proposal to ban all Muslims from the country. And Tucker had completely forgotten that that had ever happened and as, as you note in the book, it, it goes to show how much whitewashing and normalizing and rationalizing Trump supporters in the media do to make Trump a palatable politi political figure. And, and, you know, that started happening days after January 6th on Fox. Totally. Fox itself, when, when Fox News, all Fox News hosts pretty much condemned Trump. And his supporters that day. And within days afterwards, the narrative was changing. Tell us about that, about the months after January 6th and how Fox News pretty much went from, like the Republican Party, saying, OK, Trump is done, to coming around and now almost fully supporting him as we go into 2024. They certainly condemned the rioters that day. And mm. and by the way, for, for anybody who reads, reads the book, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the January 6th timeline. Right. The hour by hour of what happens because uh, Fox was ahead of the other networks. <laughs> Fox Fox warned of the violence before CNN. You know, I try to give credit in the book. Uh, Fox anchors and reporters were on the air showing tear gas outside the Capitol right. earlier than their rivals. And, and why does Chad, that matter? Chad Pergram was Donald also Trump's a very watching. good congressional. Right. Chad Pergram's yeah. a great reporter there. Right. Fox, Trump was watching Fox. So Trump was seeing the, the chaos actually earlier than CNN viewers. I, I, I remember that day emailing the, the control room saying, can we, can we pivot from the inside to the outside? We need to show the outside of the Capitol. The West Front's under attack. And, you know, I, and lots of people were emailing. I'm, I'm just one of them. But my point is, Fox, Fox was ahead. <laughs> uh, the, this went on for hours. And so, yes, Fox stars did condemn the rioters. But that night, Dr. Carlson says something very important on the air. 
He says to his viewers, the Trump base, he says, this was not your fault. This was their fault. So as always, he's doing us versus them. He's pointing in the other direction saying, blame the elites, blame the Democrats, blame the liberals, blame whoever you want. This isn't on you. It's on them. So he starts telling an alternative story about Jan 6 on Jan 6. And as you all know, Antifa gets named a few times on air that right. night. Already there's this uh, memory holding of January 6 and a new story that emerges that says it wasn't Trump's fault and it wasn't your fault, the Trump base's fault. Uh, and that's critical to the replatforming of Donald Trump. Because when Rupert Murdoch says, we're going to make Trump a non-person, we're pivoting away from Trump as fast as we can, he has Fox board members breathing down his neck, Lachlan Murdoch, uh, sorry, uh, Paul Ryan, breathing down his neck. We need to break ties with Trump. And they do for a while. Right. But I think the reason why Trump is able to reemerge, the reason why he's able to come back to center stage is because of the alternative reality of Jan 6, the, the new story that gets told by Tucker Carlson and others, the Patriot Purge story, the false flag story. It's because they're able to come up with this alternative narrative that, uh, what's the word? It, it lets, it frees Trump. It makes Trump an innocent, mm -hmm. right? And thus Trump's able to come back. Right. Yeah. One very interesting character in your book is Chris Wallace, who was brought on to Fox News as an anchor to add a lot of credibility to its news division. And uh, Chris, I should point out another friend of the show. Uh, he really clashed with some of the Trumpier hosts on Fox, like Greg Gutfeld, who would right. openly attack him on air. You also had Tucker right. Carlson attacking news anchor Shep Smith on air. There has really been on Fox in the last couple of years an atmosphere of tension between the news division and the opinion hosts, and you see that clearly in the Dominion evidence. And yeah. you always hear people say that, that that kind of those kind of clashes, those kind of public spats between hosts, is not the kind of thing that would have been allowed under Roger Ailes, the former boss, for all of his many many faults. Um, he insisted on no shooting inside the tent. Do you think that part of the problems that Fox News found itself in and and uh, in in 2020 uh, after the election and all of its coverage there and in January 6. Do you think that that is part is the leadership partly to blame? Is that something you could have foreseen happening under Roger Ailes? The leadership is partly to blame. Mm -hmm. uh, I even quote a staffer in the book calling Suzanne Scott a dodo bird, which I know is which is I, I know offensive. Uh, but this was a person who, because of their experience at Fox, I felt uh, it was a, a significant thing to share. The, the point is that in that post-Roger Ailes period, uh, Fox goes from being a top-down institution to a bottom-up one, uh, where it feels like there's different fiefdoms, where it feels like no one's really in charge. And by the way, some of that is, is strategic on Suzanne Scott's part. She has learned from the Murdochs, I believe, to push responsibility downward. So if she's the pain sponge, for the Murdochs, she has turned her lieutenants into the pain sponges. So she doesn't have to deal with some of the, the dirty details. Uh, so as a result, people definitely feel that there's a leadership vacuum at Fox. Um, with regards to Chris Wallace, you know, I have a scene in the book that hasn't been reported before about his decision to go to CNN. And I, I think Chris Wallace is an example of uh, what one insider in the book calls the double or triple game that the Murdochs play, where they make money from the opinion talking heads, mm. but then they reap other rewards from the news outlet. They, re they, they earn credibility from figures like Chris Wallace. 
that they arguably then spend on the opinion people, right? And, mm-hmm. and so Chris Wallace, he spends all of 2021 trying to find a new place to do what he does. He he knows he wants to leave Fox, but Fox really, truly tried to keep him. You know, they really, they offered him a new deal. They really, truly tried to keep him in the fold doing Fox News Sunday. So when he gives notice to Fox management and says, I'm going to CNN, Jeff Zucker's offered me a show on CNN Plus, I'm taking the deal. Uh, Fox calls up Wallace's agent and says, is there anything we can offer that would change your mind? And uh, and Wallace's answer, I, I report, it's a one-word answer. It's no, nothing, nothing. There's nothing you can do to change my mind. He 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 could not abide Fox anymore. Um, uh-huh. And that you know, people like Wallace, it's a real loss. They every year, maybe we should do this for for the site. Make a list of you know, year by year, the talent. Diana's here, part of it that has walked <laughs> out the door. Um, you know, and and that that loss of journalism, that loss of journalistic yeah. rigor year by year has added up a lot. Right. Well, you know, speaking of journalistic rigor, a Fox correspondent named Jackie Henrik was one of the targets of the opinion side of the network. We know from the Dominion evidence that after she fact-checked Trump's election lies, she was attacked internally from everyone from to- Fox's top online editor, Porter Berry, to Tucker Carlson. Then you have Eric Sean, a Fox anchor who faced criticism from Suzanne Scott for simply fact-checking Trump's lies, doing what journalists are supposed to do. I mean, what kind of climate was it like for news reporters at the network at that time? Did they fear punishment for doing their jobs? I think we see that. Um, I think we see that in the Dominion filings. Uh, yes, uh, you know, we see a correspondent complaining about being sidelined, feeling like she's been put on ice uh, because she's out there doing what she believes is her job. You know, reporting what she believes to be true, um, and that goes to the lack of leadership issue as well. Uh, where, you know, it, it felt like, and it certainly to these reporters, it felt like management had the back of the propaganda people and not the backs of the journalists. And then we saw it again this year uh, with the Dominion case, when the public filings started to come out, you know, there, there were no, uh, you know, back padding moments. There were very little of those, at least where, you know, it felt like Fox correspondents had the support of the leadership team. Now, to be fair to the leadership team, they were pretty busy fending off this case. And this, you know, what, what could you possibly say sometimes to explain away some of these messages? But it, it did bring all of these problems from 2020 back up to the surface in 2023. And, you know, in some ways that's appropriate because this is still a live issue. We're about to go through this again. We're about to have another election where there's going to be a tug of war between democracy and autocracy, between uh, flawed but, but you know, real reporters versus a propaganda arm that doesn't care what the truth is. Are you worried about Fox News and the role it's going to play in 2024? Is that a big concern of yours? You know, I, I worry about getting my kids to school on time, so I have lots of worries. But <laughs> yes, it's a, I don't want to dodge you. Yes is the answer. I think I think there's a lot of reasons to be concerned. It's for the same reason that I was asking the head of Fox News PR in, in September of 2020, What's the plan? What's the plan when Sean Hannity goes on the air and contradicts your decision desk? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, my text messages with her got swept up in the, the Dominion discovery process. Uh, but, but look, I think those same questions need to be asked again. They are being asked again. We do know a partial answer. We know that Arna Mishkin, the head of the decision desk, will still be, uh, I, I believe, still be there in 2024. So same guy, same professional will be in charge of the, the calls. The question is not so much who makes the projections. It's whether the rest of the network believes and and backs up the projections. Right. That was the breakdown in 2020. Fox did report accurately, but then 
gave in to what the the viewers wanted, which was false hope and five stages of grief. The one thing I know is that the Arizona call is going to be made six months later this time, I, I suspect. Um, let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about you. Uh, you've been no, candid. let's not talk about me. Let's I'm get boring. into the Brian part of the interview, less, which will be less. the bulk. I'm kidding. <laughs> just a couple, just Sorry, a couple guys, questions. My, inter my internet's breaking up. My Wi-Fi is not working. Uh, of course, yes. Uh, you have been somewhat candid about your ouster from CNN. Actually, very candid, I would say. You've you've answered all questions about it. We expect the same here. Uh, no pressure. So, <laughs> when that happened, Chris Licht, the previous regime of of cnn the short-lived successor to jeff zucker he let you go he canceled reliable sources which was a long-running show on cnn that you helmed for nearly a decade what was what went through your head when that first happened were you furious sad happy that you didn't have to do another the weekly show anymore what were you feeling what was i feeling well uh, look, I actually reveal some stuff about this in the book that I haven't I haven't said before, um, and that's not me trying to work in a book plug. It's just it's me pay, pulling up page twenty, so I I remember the way that I worded it. You know, because for, for me this was about the summer of twenty twenty two, and I had an inkling that summer that Reliable was on the chopping block. Uh, and I say in the book, I, I even crafted a memo uh, trying to defend the show. I you know I cited mm. its high ratings. I cited its low production costs. Um, but look, by the time you're writing a memo trying to keep your show alive, you're pretty well aware that it's dead. Okay? Right. And by August of 2022, I was in my head. I was treating every show like it was my last, even though I didn't know for sure, and and I was hoping for a different outcome. And um, but look, by the time I was called into Chris Lick's office. I knew what the meeting was about. You know, I, wa I wasn't told why it was canceled, but, but it, he was very respectful. He gave me a chance to sign off on the, on the network, sign off on my own terms and say whatever I wanted to say to book whoever I wanted to book. Very different than Tucker Carlson's situation, by the way. Right. And, you know, I offer a theory why uh, in the book, which is there was mutual respect. Um, I had known Licht and, and David Zaslav for, for a very long time. I knew their wives. I knew their publicists. You know, like relationships build mutual respect. And the difference for Tucker, which you mentioned earlier, is that he had no productive relationship with Suzanne Scott. There was no reason to trust that he wasn't going to go on the air and light the network on fire. Um, you know, Licht knew I wasn't a pyromaniac. So, so, you know, we worked it out. And I think maybe that's why I wasn't bitter or angry. You, you had some funny words about my emotions. I'm trying to remember what those emotions were. You know what the main emotion was in August of 2020? Um, number one, it was concern about the producers of the show because they, they, were, uh, they lost their jobs as a result. And, you know, I felt that very personally. Um, number two, the emotion I felt was this uh, crazy um, uh, determination to finish moving my family. We, we were in the middle of a move. Did I ever tell you this, Aiden? We were moving no, out of New York City. You we, may have. We'd already decided. We, we, had, you know, we have a farm out in New Jersey. In Jersey. We'd already oh, this decided. was the we move to Jersey. This was the move. We, I literally, I, I, I shit you not. I had a moving truck already lined up, ready to go. When I got called into Lick's office, we were moving to Jersey full time. We were moving out of our apartment in, in yeah. Manhattan, and you know, relocating my kids. My kid, daughter's about to go to kindergarten. I, it was, it was just everything all at once. Mm -hmm. So next day, so basically, what I said, I said, can we just wait a couple of days before we announce this? Because I want to get done with the move first. But you know how these things are. Everything leaks. So the next day, the news leaks. I am 
at the top of the Empire State Building with my kids. I brought my kids up to the top of the Empire State Building. I wanted to show them the city, you know? Yeah. They're like six and fours, so back then they were five and two. This is, there's where your house is, and here's where your new house is. Like, we were having this great time up there. That's when the news leaks. And my phone battery is at like 10%. So I am like freaking out, you know, oh unable, <laughs> unable to, to do it. And uh, uh, I actually had to go back to see back to the office to charge my phone. <laughs> I, to, this to is to why you didn't respond to my text in a very timely fashion. <laughs> I remember that is you, you literally had, why. That is literally you had some why. you had um, some fantastical excuse about being on top of the Empire State Building, but not Sorry. out of any you know. But anyway, so that was my day. That was my life. It was like I was busy moving, and you know what? That's a good thing. It was to have this total reboot, this total restart of my mm -hmm. life. You know, um, new place. You know, you know. Um, new job, which was stay-at-home dad. Um, I think that's why I have such such positive feelings and no ill will. You know what I mean? I, I it was really fun. I, I loved anchoring the show. It was an honor to anchor the show, but it was also a phase of life. And people have many phases of life. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, the truth is, I, I you want to you want to really know the truth that I should microphone? Yeah. I probably did it. I probably did it a year too long. You know, there's a part of me that. Um, you never in life, you never want to start to repeat yourself, right? You never want to start, you never want something to get a little too comfortable. Mm. And maybe, maybe that, maybe that wasn't happening yet, but I think I was in the danger zone of that starting to happen. So, you know, there you go. That's my honest answer. We are back with Brian Stelter on the interview after a short break, a uh, short break that actually involved Brian's book party, uh, which I attended last night. Uh, Brian, uh, congrats <laughs> on the book party. Uh, it was a roaring success. I had a lot of fun. I was very interested in who was in attendance, notably a lot of CNN executives uh, and you know hosts, I expect. I was interested to see some of the CNN PR people there. Uh, Jeff Zucker was there a number of MSNBC hosts, uh, New York Times reporters. It really, it, it was a really uh, good turnout. Uh, how, did, how did the party go for Thank you? Thank you for resuming with me after I screwed up yesterday and had to <laughs> run away. Uh, you know, I, I was I felt feeling the pressure of the podcast, but of course. now yeah, here he I on. am, I'm back. That's okay. So, so yeah, you know, it was just nice to, honestly, it's nice to have any party now. I feel like post COVID, I don't take this stuff for granted anymore. Mm. Uh, when, when host came out in 2020, I, I couldn't have a book party, you know? So it's just, <laughs> it's nice to get, you know, people I know in the same room. And, uh, you know, it's also, you know what I enjoy, Aiden? I like yeah. getting media reporters in the same room as some of these TV anchors and executives. Love it. You know, because sometimes you get a little source relationship going on. Right. Hey, who knows what happened? Funnily enough, I, I went out to dinner uh, right after and ran into Chris Cuomo. Your uh, former, former colleague, and it got me thinking: uh, Are you in touch with him at all? And would you ever consider, now that Reliable Sources is no longer on CNN, News Nation needs programming? Is thinking about, you know, they do a decent amount of media reporting. Would you ever do a sort of Reliable Sources on News Nation? Right now, I don't think the world needs a Brian Salter network. You know. Oh. I, I I really I look back. I was actually Dan Abrams asked me about this on News yeah. Nation the other day. He said, 
you know, I said, I feel like the past is the past. I feel like I had this amazing chapter of my life and career on CNN, but now I have this other awesome chapter that I'm, I'm enjoying even more. And, you know, it involves writing for every, you know, place that I've ever wanted to write for and uh, taping podcasts where I can go really long with people as, uh, you know, the joy of that. By the way, yeah, I haven't gotten a Mediate byline yet. You're like the only site, you know, that I haven't been able to write for yet. Come, so come write for us. Gonna, my, in, my inbox gonna, is open. Just going right, to put that out there. But, but, you know, when it comes to something like News Nation, I mean, I think it's an interesting experiment. I, I really, I, that's how I view it as an experiment. It's had an incredibly hard time drawing in the kinds of eyeballs that MSNBC or Fox or CNN draw. But, you know, I, I say the more, the more diversity in the media, the better. You know, the more, the more of these options for viewers, the better. Right. Now, just going back quickly to your time at CNN and, and the ouster there, one of the theories that I think gets bandied around is that you and, and some other hosts at CNN really became targets of big names on Fox News. You were mentioned regularly on The Five, as you noted on Tucker Carlson's show, Hannity's show. And people like John Malone, who is a board member of Warner Brothers Discovery, CNN's parent company, as we know, is a, is a fan of Fox News. Do you think that that had anything to do with the reason why you were, your show was canceled, that, that there were people at CNN or Warner Brothers Discovery that were watching Fox News's coverage and decided that you were a villain? <laughs> a villain. Listen, what, what, you're, what you're basically saying is, if you only watch CNN through Fox News, in other words, if you only understand what CNN is through the warped prism of Fox, then yeah, you're not gonna like me. You're, you're not gonna you're not gonna like uh, Don Lemon. Uh, right. So I, I I get that that is a a reality. I have no idea if that's a reality for any board member at Warner Brothers Discovery. But that is the reality of the media age we we live in. This is what you all cover. Like if if you only hear about something, you know, filtered through the the worst possible Instagram filter, right? Turns them into demon with horns, right? Then then you're gonna dislike that those figures. Look, the truth is, I I I. I embrace the fact that I don't know why Reliable Sources was canceled. Uh, I find that to be a freeing feeling not to know. But here's here's what I do know. And I've, I've thought about this now that we're a few years past the Trump presidency. Who knows where we're heading? But at least we have had a few years to look back. If if I ticked people off because I was on TV trying to say, hey, stop lying about the media. Uh, stop calling us the enemy. OK, it's un-American. It's unpatriotic. Uh, hey, the country's better than this demagogue. If, if like that was upsetting, if that was offensive, like if that's why Fox made me a target, like I don't have regrets about that. I, I don't think anyone would have regrets about that. I I think, um, you know, did, did I, you know, was I, uh, did I, did I screech once in a while? And I, when I shouldn't have screeched, maybe, I don't know. Like there's a couple segments, there's a couple segments that I wish I'd interrupted a guest a little earlier. Mm -hmm. Like you always, you know, when you look back at your, your, your body of work, right. Whether it's a book or a TV show or, a, you know, or writing for a website, you're always going to nitpick yourself and say, you know, gosh, that headline wasn't perfect. And I, I, I wish I had, I wish I, you know, I wish I had added two more minutes to that interview. But like, when I look back overall, I don't have regrets about, about the way that, uh, that, that I or, or my team or honestly CNN as a whole um, approached that, that unprecedented period. I don't think and I've ever said that out loud. It's kind of nice to talk oh. about, guys. Thanks. You're making me think about it. It's good. Of course, of course. And, and having that, that perspective, being away now from inside you know, CNN, what has it been like watching all the drama at CNN from the outside? 
it's been frustrating, honestly, because because uh, the place doesn't deserve or need any drama. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's one of the world's best news organizations, and I think it always will be. Uh, and it, it, it's you know it's at its best when it's not the news. So you know all, all of those cliches are true about not wanting to be the story. That really is true for CNN. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why that, that's happened, and. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's really that valuable to go looking back at it. And, you know, um, uh, yeah, I don't know if I have any interesting thoughts on it. <laughs> you mentioned in a recent interview that you have a startup idea. What would this look like exactly? And uh, would would Jeff Zucker be involved in this? Uh, I can't tell you the idea unless you're you're coming with me to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I, listen, we don't have the there pockets are of Redbird, unfortunately, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> we're working on it. <laughs> Here's, you know, here's the, the here's like the, the my my the reality of my you know t boring life now, which is there are a couple of days a week where I wake up and I I think I have a really great idea and I think I'm ready to go and try it, um, but those are only a couple of days a week. And then the rest of the days of the week, I wake up and you know I'm trying to learn how to you know make better breakfast for my kids and not just make frozen waffles and you know I'm I'm having fun you know fixing up the farmhouse and like I'm just in a I'm in a phase of life that, you know, uh, I'm not sure I want to commit 200% to, to something yet. So that's why, that's why it hasn't happened yet. But I, you know, there's, here's, here's where I, here's, here's why I'm, I'll, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without giving away the idea. Okay. Here's what I've, like, when I look around the media space, this, this industry that we all cover, that we're all obsessed with, I do see a lot of space for, for more coverage and, and curation and more, um, like, you know, I just, I see opportunities. Let's put it that way. I see, I see opportunities. I guess right. I can't really, how do I tease? I'm not trying to tease it. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm just breaking news. Well, yeah, you don't want to give away intellectual. Yeah. You don't want to bring it. You know, a, a year ago, like I didn't even know how to make an egg. Like I didn't even know how to crack an egg, you know, and like I'm trying to make scrambled eggs now for my kids. I'm trying to do the, <sighs> like the, the smiley face, pancake, the Mickey mouse pancakes. Like sure. maybe that's the, stuff. maybe, that's maybe the I'm, maybe that's the it's a yeah, it's a it's a cooking channel. I love it. Um, well, the, the book is Network of Lies: The Epic Saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the Battle for American Democracy. It is out now. Go buy it. It's really really interesting. It's a great read, and uh, it reveals a lot about Fox News, about the media landscape, and about America right now. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Brian. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of the interview. Please subscribe to the interview on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. And check out coverage of our conversation with Brian Stelter on Mediaite.com.